So I'm sure they'll, I'll get a nod uh, if there's something wrong otherwise. Let's come to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our precious Heavenly Father, we ask uh, as we come in here uh, from the hustle and bustle of the week, or even this morning, uh, we ask that you'd help us to quiet our hearts and enable us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So you might remember from last week that we've started the new study in the book of James. And I wanted to start off by doing just a bit of a review. Uh, so just to put in context our passage today, and again, we're doing James 1, 5 through 11. So if you want to go ahead and uh, preemptively flip to that passage, that could be helpful. So by way of quick review, I want to go over just a few things. First, who is James? What is the book? And what is this chapter that we're studying today? Uh, first of all, and very briefly, who is James? Uh, Joe Fowler covered this very well uh, and in depth last week. Uh, but I want to give just a quick overview again for anyone that may have missed it, because I think it's really helpful to understand uh, each time that we read from the book. And it's important to ask this question. Who wrote this? This is a letter, right? So when we get a letter, we want to know who it's from. That's important. Um, I had a, a pastor uh, when I was growing up uh, is in the PCA. His name was Harry Reader. And he, I remember him making this comment that anytime he received a letter from somebody in, in the congregation and it was not signed or there was no return address, he wouldn't read it, right? Because he expects that if people have comments or complaints that they would have the courage of their convictions and put their name on it, right? So it is important uh, to know who a letter is from. Fortunately, we know who wrote this because he signed it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, which James is it? We know that there are several James in the New Testament. It can be whittled down noting the following clues, and this is interesting, noting the following clues from the book itself, you can whittle this down. First, this James that wrote this book knew the Palestinian world so well, he was even to the point of being able to write about the early and late rains, and that's R-A-I-N-S, by the way. Second, he and his readers were familiar with the dispersion. He calls Abraham our father. And he assumed the readers were familiar with his story, as well as that of Rahab, the prophets, Job, and Elijah. So from this, there's two James that it could be. One is James the Apostle, the brother of John, who was executed in 44 A.D., but this James that we're reading today, this James introduces himself as only a servant. And there is no hint of him being an apostle. So as one, like Joe Fowler might say, the preponderance of evidence, or may even here would go so far as to say clear and convincing, is that this is uh, the James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, by uh, what by whatever evidentiary standard we use, uh, it does seem likely that this is James, is the, also the brother of Jude, who introduces himself in Jude verses 1. And I read, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. 
So again, therefore, this is most likely the, uh, none other than the child of Mary and Joseph. And of course, that's the Mary and Joseph. And again, the half-brother of Jesus. And you know, I thought, what a benefit is, it is to have the teaching of someone who lived in Jesus' family. J James spoke of him as, and you can see this, he's, James spoke of Jesus as, quote, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord of glory. So it must have been that James was convinced. I don't know of many people who talk about their siblings that way. Think of this too, uh, and this occurred to me as I was reading through this and meditating on it. Think about how he starts the letter. So, if, for example, if I were to start the letter, very likely I, in my prideful heart, would probably have started it off with something to the effect of, I'm the brother of Jesus. And that would be my attempt to get everybody to pay attention to me, but he doesn't. He starts in humility. He says, a servant, right? And, of course, the word that's used here is essentially the lowest of the low. So he starts this book in humility. Uh, one last interesting point about James uh, is that it's evident from John 7 and Mark 3 that there was a time when James was not a believer. So it's interesting to, to read about him, as we would say in the literary universe, as a three-dimensional character. And that's only because of the saving work of, of Christ. So that's James the person. James the book. What is James the book? Throughout centuries, it's proven to be what have many, many have called a great refresher course on living the Christian life. A great refresher course on living the Christian life, the book of James. It is direct, it is to the point, which can be off-putting to some people uh, if they don't view it correctly. You know, occasionally, and I know that you've all heard this at some point, uh, James gets a bit of a bad rap for being about works. Uh, it's really a book about faith or more specifically, faith working through love. Faith working through love. This might sound familiar from Galatians 5, 6. And I quote, For when Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right, so that's, that's the book. So what is this chapter? Again, we're in chapter 1. This chapter is about the basics of faith. And for our purposes, for this study, we've divided it into four themes. Uh, last week, we discussed experiencing various trials. This week, we're talking about wisdom and asking for wisdom. Next week, we're talking about understanding temptation. And lastly, obeying God's word. These are the four themes in the first chapter of James. Uh, again, we're looking today at 5 through 11. And I'm going to read this, and I encourage you to follow along. Uh, but before I read this, I want to make a point, or more of an observation. Um, and it's based on my own years of, uh, of, of struggling as a, as a reader uh, and as a learner, uh, perhaps even watching some of our own children uh, as, uh, as, as they have learned to read through the years. Um, quick point, and hang with me on this. I always have to introduce music at some point. Um, when I play music, I have to learn and focus on every single note, rhythm, articulation, dynamic, etc. After a while, it becomes part of my muscle memory, so I no longer have to look at every individual thing. We get to the point where we just look at patterns. Why is that important as a musician? Well, because as a musician, you have to multitask. In addition to sitting in your seat, faithfully reading the music on the page, you also have to compare what you're doing with what the conductor is doing. You have to compare what you're doing with all the other musicians around you, you have to compare your intonation, how in tune you are, with, um, with all the other musicians around you. So you're constantly multitasking and, and adapting to changes as you go. 
that's a wonderful thing to be able to do, a wonderful skill to develop as a musician. Uh, in reading, in reading words, that's not necessarily a good skill. And again, this is from my own experience. Have any of you ever read through a page of a book and you got to the end of the page or you got to the end of the chapter and you realize that you have no idea what you just read? Has that ever happened? You have no idea what you just read, but you can fully explain what your plans are for lunch because that's what you just spent the two minutes uh, previous thinking about. And this is always a problem for me, is I would multitask while reading from a book. Um, so I want to challenge you and me, uh, as particularly when we're reading from the Word of God, uh, to not multitask, right? But to be single-minded uh, and, and follow the words. So as I read it, you'll get to see and hear the words so our brains get a double dose. Uh, so we're going to take in each word, sentence, and idea together. Again, this is James 1, starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And again, today we're looking at uh, wisdom and asking for wisdom. You might remember from last week that trials should lead not to sorrow, but to what? To joy, right? Trials lead to joy. And recall that joy is not an emotion. And this is a really important point uh, that Joe made last week. Joy is not an emotion. And that's a good thing. Because think how quickly emotions can change. You're having a wonderful day and you feel happy, suddenly you receive a phone call. It could change like that. All right? Joy is not an emotion. Joy comes from abiding in Him. John 15, 7 might come to mind here. And you don't have to turn to it, but John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Joy comes from abiding in Him. So how does the discussion today logically flow from the previous. We know that any portion of the Bible does not exist in a vacuum. We have to see how it fits in with what comes before it and what comes after it. So how does what we're studying today relate to what we did last week? Um, well, it's this. The only possible thing that could explain us associating trials and hardships with joy is wisdom. And remember what Joe said about trials uh, last week, and I want to make sure I quote him correctly. I wrote it down. Trials refer to external situations allowed by God to build maturity in a believer. Trials refer to external situations allowed by God to build maturity in a believer. And then he referenced 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. I also remember 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and I quote, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Um, 
I, I will say that prepositions matter. Uh, and in this case, I want you to note the word in. Give thanks in all circumstances. Not that I have to give thanks for specifically. So like if, for example, random example, let's say I have a flat tire driving through a tunnel on I-10 just east of Mobile, Alabama at 1.30 in the morning without a working cell phone. Am I thanking, am I thanking God? Thank you for the flat tire. No, but in that situation, I can still possess a thankful heart. Now, I do have to step back and say, technically, technically, if I look at Romans 8.28, maybe I can thank him for it, right? Romans 8.28, does it not say that all things, right? We won't flip to it now, but I encourage you to do it later. It says all things. It doesn't say most things. It doesn't say happy things, but it says all things. Uh, so that's, uh, that's another way we can think about associating trials with joy. So uh, something else Joe said, obviously, as you can tell, he was a great lesson prep for me, so thank you. Um, he mentioned working out in the gym last week, right? He mentioned, you know, I guess, what would that be, pumping iron or some such, some such thing? So he mentioned working out in the gym next week. And what's interesting is that this produces a really nice analogy. God in his providence made our bodies such that in order to make muscles stronger, what must you first do? Break them down. Break them down through trials, right? And then once the muscles are fed the necessary nutrients, the muscles are built back stronger, all right? And that's, that's an interesting analogy with what we're studying today, uh, which brings to mind Romans 5.3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Wow, it's fun to see how this all comes together. Um, all right, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? This is a, wisdom is a word like some other words you could think of. Uh, I asked the family last night, and they said love. Love is another word like this. And it's a word that if I came up to, if I came up to you today individually and said, all right, in 30 seconds, define wisdom, go, I would get as many answers as I have people that I asked, right? Wisdom is one of those things that's kind of difficult to put into words, but we know it when we see it. Um, so it does have a definition, but how it's worded can be as diverse as the number of people we ask. Uh, so I want to I start, you know, if you want to learn anything about what our corrupt culture thinks, uh, you go to Google. And so I did that. Um, you know, and these aren't terrible, but you'll notice something lacking from these definitions. All right. So I, I literally just went to Google and pulled up a couple random uh, thoughts on wisdom. And it makes sense. It does. It makes sense. But there's something missing. All right. Here's one. The quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. The quality of being wise, right? Well, that's kind of a uh, self-referencing definition. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But uh, the quality of having experience, does that by itself give you wisdom? No. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, here's another one. The soundness of an action or decision with regard to the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. And then another one, the body of knowledge and principles that develops within a specified society or period. Um, here's another one I found. Ask the world what they think wisdom is. 
Wisdom is the ability to contemplate and act using knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense. I've never heard of that. I've never seen any of that. Uh, but I hear there's such thing as common sense. And insight. Wisdom is associated with attributes such as unbiased judgment, wrong, compassion, experiential self-knowledge, self-transcendence, and non-attachment, and virtues such as ethics and benevolence. All right. There's some secular definitions of wisdom. Uh, let's go to another one that comes from a biblical worldview. Donald McKim in the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms defines wisdom as, quote, knowledge of what is good and true, and thus the basis for what is true or false. I'm going to repeat that sentence. Knowledge of what is good and true, and thus the basis for what is true or false. The term has a long philosophical history since philosophy means love of wisdom. It is an attribute, and this is important, it is an attribute of God and a gift of the Spirit. And then he references Isaiah 11.2 and Ephesians 1.17. Uh, and that's uh, the end of that quote. By the way, I, I mentioned the term Google Scholar earlier. That's not something I encourage people to be. Uh, not, not that Google's bad, but if that's your sole source of, uh, of information, that's probably not a good thing. Usually in academia, we use the term Google Scholar as, as a pejorative. All right, what does the Bible say about wisdom? Well, we don't have time for that this morning, but let me give a little bit. Well, to start with, it tells us that wisdom is better than gold. I don't have a lot of that, but I hear it's good. It says that wisdom is better than gold. Sinclair Ferguson says in his book that wisdom is not only knowing about, but knowing how, how to, right? Not only knowing about. Remember I said you could ask 30 different people, you get 30 different definitions? He says that wisdom is not only knowing about, but knowing how to. Um, my family, my friends, and even my students, one thing they know about me is that I love everything that has to do with airplanes and flying. I study it, I read books, I talk about it. Um, it I'm constantly using flying metaphors, just constantly. Um, but you do not want me flying a plane that you're on. I don't want me flying a plane that I'm on. All right, so there's a difference between knowing about and knowing how to. Um, I hear there's somebody else in the room that I would love to have flying the plane, but not me, not me. Likewise, we all know about translating trials to joy. We've been talking about it. We've been reading about it. We know about translating trials to joy, but how to, but we have to know how to, all right? Can we fly that plane without crashing it? There's an entire genre of books in the Old Testament uh, dealing with this, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and so forth. But when you read it, you see it's not just information about life, but a knowledge of how to navigate life in this real fallen world. Ferguson says it this way, and I quote, Not information as much as it is understanding, a developed instinct to plot a course, not into the side of a mountain, those are my words, but through life so that we can be faithful to God, live according to His Word, and be fruitful in His service. So we must understand that God Himself embodies wisdom. He expressed it in creation, Proverbs 3.19, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. He expresses wisdom in His providence in the way He saved sinners while remaining righteous Himself through the cross. 
So God embodies wisdom, and He wants us to walk in wisdom. Ephesians 5:15 through 17. Listen carefully to these words, by the way. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So if you're careful, you might be able to glean something about what wisdom is. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Continuing, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So spend your time well and follow the Lord's will for you. There's a basic principle in this, by the way, that's um, expressed well in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. But or be not wise, you've heard this before, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Be not wise in your own eyes. Remember that definition I read over here? Self-transcendence, experiential knowledge. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. By the way, if doing this leads to healing and refreshment, what does not doing this do? Probably something not pleasant. So what does James say about wisdom here in our text this morning? Well, right off the bat, if you look in verse 5, right off the bat in verse 5, he says that wisdom comes from God. doesn't come from me. doesn't come from my experience. Wisdom comes from God. And if you don't have it, what do you do? You ask for it, right? Uh, but wisdom... Similar to the concept of sanctification, wisdom doesn't come to us all at once. All right? We don't get our full measure of it when we're saved. It's gained progressively by degrees over time. This means that asking for wisdom, asking for wisdom like Solomon did is a good and necessary thing. But listen carefully, so is continuing to ask for it. To which I always ask the question to myself, have I prayed for it today yet? When am I going to do it? Joe mentioned last Lord's Day that, quote, genuine believers love to obey. I think this is part of wisdom, and I encourage you to regularly pray for a desire to be obedient to the Lord. You can't muster that up with emotion. You need to pray for it. Proverbs starts with son, uh, father-son talks about fearing the Lord. We know this as well. Uh, why? Because the fear of the Lord is the what? The beginning of wisdom. Note the word beginning, Right? Again, that indicates that attaining wisdom is progressive. We must, in humility, recognize that we are by nature lacking in wisdom. All right? Even if I can add many more years to my, to my ledger, that doesn't increase me by itself in wisdom. So wisdom is important. So we need it. We need wisdom to discern God's purposes, for example, when we're faced with trials. We all know that when we're faced with temptations, when we're faced with difficult situations, right? And even when we're faced with difficult people. And I know you'll be surprised to know that there's actually some of those out there, uh, difficult people. Um, uh, actually, I think Lisa could probably point one out for you. Uh, so without wisdom, we're lost. Without wisdom, we're lost and hopeless in the face of such things. 
Wisdom helps us see beyond the situation. It helps us to see beyond the situation in front of us and helps us to see the bigger picture and to look forward towards God's goal. In this fallen world, we're usually going through some level of trial, yes? Probably everybody in here today can think of a trial that you're currently going through. Sometimes the trials are, uh, are more than others. Sometimes the trials that, that you go through are much more than others. What do we do in that, in that situation? We yield to the Father's hands. Proverbs 4 urges us to get wisdom. Okay, so again, how do we get wisdom? We ask God for it. We pray. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, and I quote, We grow in wisdom when, trusting Him, we learn to be submissive to His word and ways and live in prayerful dependence upon Him. So we pray for it. What else? Wisdom is found in God's Word. We are called to read and meditate on God's Word and then to apply it to our lives. So pray that the Holy Spirit will help you, right? He's a helper. Pray that the Holy Spirit will help you do that. So we spend time in the Word and pray. Which takes me to a verse, actually, um, that I think I queued up. We, we spend time in the Word and pray. I'm reading from John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. This is what I think this is what is meant by abiding in Him. We need to stay in the Word and pray. All right, so that's good. That's how to. Do we trust that He'll do that? Do we trust that He'll give it to us if we ask for it? Well, he says he will, right? So if, if we believe the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself to us, then we should believe it. Because there's something about the Bible that's very simple. It's either true or it's not, right? There's not really much in between. We can't go through like somebody else we know did in history and tear out, I don't like this page, I don't like that page, I don't like that page, right? The Bible's either true or it's not. I think we all know the answer here, uh, but then we get trials. We get the trials that test us, and this, and this is when we get to live it out in front of a watching world. Look at our passage again in verse 5. One thing that people say about me is I like to talk, so I'm going to talk faster. Look at our passage in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will, not may, it will be given him. As an administrator, the word may is a wonderful word, right? It gives you a little bit of leeway if you need to hedge your bets. He doesn't do that here. He says, and it will be given. If we don't believe this, if we don't believe this, then we will believe something else. That stands to reason. If I choose not to believe this, then by definition you're choosing to, to believe something else. And that something else will be a what? It'll be a lie. And coincidentally, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, but in, uh, coincidentally that lie will result in the very thing that Satan wants for you. So you've got to ask for wisdom. You don't gain wisdom by just getting up in the morning, day after day after day after day after day. I, I came across two uh, humorous quips which I think make the point well. Uh, Years make all of us old and very few of us wise. All right. Age doesn't come 
excuse me, age doesn't always bring wisdom. Sometimes age comes along. Uh, I heard, a, I heard a, a story of a college dean uh, who, who went to his boss and he asked for a promotion. And, he, and the boss says, well, well, why? Tell me why. And he says, well, I have 20 years of experience. So the boss says, okay, let's talk about this. In your 20 years, have you ever undertaken any uh, special initiatives in your area? No. Have you ever chaired any committees or task forces? No. Have you ever chaired any or have you ever uh, done any fundraising or grant writing? No. Have you ever taken the lead with any curriculum updating or accreditation matters? No. So the boss says to him, it doesn't sound like you have 20 years of experience. It sounds like you have one year of experience 20 times. This is a true story, by the way. That actually happened. Not at a school that I worked at, but that, that actually happened. Um, so pray for wisdom and pray for it daily. So we know what wisdom is. We know how to get it. So what hinders us? What, what prevents us from getting wisdom? What prevents us from asking for wisdom? First thing that comes to mind, doubt. Verse 6, take a look at verse 6. I'm going to start moving faster. Verse 6 says that we ask in faith with no doubting. And it continues in verses 6 through 7. For the one who doubts is like a, a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Uh, in terms of imagery, what, what passage does that remind you of? Uh, Ephesians 4.14 so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Moving on, verse 7 says, that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. And verse 8 calls him double-minded and unstable. Double-minded and unstable. Is this unnecessarily harsh? If I call you double-minded and unstable, yeah, probably that's unnecessarily harsh. But if God words, God's Word says it, then it's necessary and we need to hear it. Uh, think of this, uh, going back to what I mentioned earlier, we all know the account from Matthew 14 when Jesus walks in the water. In the sake of time, we won't turn to it. So quick overview. The disciples saw him and feared. Then Peter asked Jesus to command him to walk toward him on the water. He did. But then what started to happen? Peter began to sink. Why? He became double-minded. He became double-minded. He became afraid. He doubted. He had one eye on Jesus and the other eye on the winds and waves. And then inevitably what happens is both eyes end up in the wrong place and he begins to sink. This is a reminder, by the way, that we need to walk by faith, not always by sight. Jesus said to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? This is a picture of what we're talking about here, by the way. So we need to not be double-minded, but to be single-minded in our love for and dependence on Christ. By the way, it's important to note that when Peter called out to Jesus, do you remember what Jesus did when Peter called out to Jesus in fear because he started to sink? Remember how Jesus stuck his finger out and say, I told you, I told you you couldn't do it. You made your bed, now you got to lie in it. Did Jesus say that? No. What does it say that he did? It said that he immediately, he immediately reached out and took hold of him. What a comfort. So what did Peter and the others do after they saw that? They did what they should have done. They worshipped. Reminds me of um, Joshua standing before Jericho. I think it was in Joshua 5 uh, where he, he comes across uh, this, this man carrying the sword and he looks really dangerous. And Joshua basically says, are you a friend or foe? Do you remember what the response is? He says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. So what did Joshua do? He fell in worship. 
And of course, we know who that commander was, don't we? So why might we doubt or even ignore all of this? When we're in seasons of blessings and everything's going swimmingly, continuing with the imagery, when we're going through wonderful seasons of life, we just assume God is wise because I'm happy. Therefore, he must be wise. Oops. But then what happens? Then you get a trial. And then things begin to go badly for us. Uh, Ferguson says, and I quote, Wisdom learns contentment from the knowledge that happiness is possible only when it is accompanied by holiness, that holiness is not always easily produced. So doubt will hinder us. What else will hinder us? Pride. I'm going to read real quickly from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. I'm going to read quickly, so listen fast. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. J.C. Ryle in one of his papers, uh, which by the way is published together with some other papers and addresses and articles in a book called uh, Warnings to the Churches, right? kind, of, uh, kind of prophetic in a way, Warnings to the Churches, and it's published under Banner of Truth if anybody wants it. It's a little volume about that big. Um, anyway, in this article, J.C. Ryle says the following after laying out how simple the truth of the wisdom of God is, and I quote, it may seem at first too simple, too easy, too cheap, too commonplace, too plain. But all the wisdom of man will never show the heavy laden man a better road to heart rest. Secret pride and self-righteousness, I fear, are too often the reason why this good old road is not used, end quote. And then Rao goes on to say, other things have a, sh or, excuse me, other things have a show of wisdom, perhaps, and give a temporary satisfaction to the flesh. Uh, alluding here, I think, to Colossians 2.23. But they have no healing power. They have no healing power about them in reality and leave the unhappy man who trusts them nothing bettered, but rather worse. Uh, in verse 9, looking hand, James writes about the lowly brother and, and the rich man. This is essentially, uh, this can be a little confusing, but this is essentially a reversal of worldly values where the poor man can boast in his exaltation while the rich man can boast in his humiliation. All right. this, is the, this is what wisdom can do. It can flip worldly wisdom on its head. If you're poor and therefore tempted to think, if only I had riches, um, you can boast in the exaltation or the reality that wisdom gives you. If you're rich and therefore prone to trust in riches, uh, you can boast in the humiliation or reality that wisdom brings you. If you're a poor man sitting around knowing that everybody's looking down on you because you're poor and you're worth nothing, literally, well, he knows that he's exalted. He can have that, he can boast in that exaltation that, that he belongs to the living God. If you're rich and you know that everybody's looking at you thinking, wow, this guy's great. He's got all this money. He's got yachts that uh, light on fire. I don't know if you saw that video yesterday. Um, he's got everything that anybody in this world uh, would ever want to have. He's wonderful. Well, he can boast in his humiliation, right? Because he knows the truth. He knows the truth if he belongs to the living God. Quick point about boasting, by the way. Uh, the New Testament very often re uh, refers to boasting as a, a symptom of a sinful heart, Romans 1.30. Yet boasting in the cross, boasting in the cross and its privileges is a good thing. Uh, we can see this in the passage from Jeremiah I just read, by the way. 
Um, I wanted to read it again, but I'm not, just for the sake of time. Uh, so what? So what are we going to take from this lesson? That I like airplanes, yes. Uh, but more importantly, what is wisdom? Why do we need it? These are questions uh, rhetorical in nature, but I'm purposely pausing so you could answer in your own mind. What is wisdom? Why do we need it? How do we get it? And then how do we continue to grow in it daily? You know, even though uh, wisdom can be a tricky uh, term to define in one sentence, we know what it is when we see it. We know what it is. And we know why we need it. And we know how to get it. We have the knowledge, right? We have the knowledge. Uh, now, how is that knowledge going to help us as we go through uh, this trial that you're in now? Or how is it going to help us as we come through and come up to the next trial that we're going to have? Uh, so when you meet your next trial, note, by the way, verse 2 says, going all the way back, verse 2 says, when you meet trials. Does it say if? Yeah. It's not a contingency plan. You know it's going to happen. When you meet trials, not if. John 16.33, right? Acts 14.22, it's pretty clear. And while we're at it, the word meet I remember, Pastor, I remember Pastor David saying this from the pulpit uh, back in 2020. Hooray for journaling Bibles, right? Um, he said that that word meet is commonly used to describe a ship that has run aground. So none of this sounds pleasant, and I don't think it's supposed to. But when we meet our next trial, perhaps instead of attempting to pray your way out of it, you should first try praying for wisdom in it. And then, uh, then we need to pray for it daily. And I pray that all of us will remember it daily. What a small task, right? We're called to be in the Word. We're called to pray daily. We're called to ask for wisdom. So that's the challenge for all of us. Let's close in prayer. Our precious Lord and Savior, as we meditate on You, Your Word, and your wisdom, please give generously as we seek wisdom and understanding that can only come from you. Please give an extra measure, uh, Lord, we ask of uh, wisdom to Pastor David, the elders and deacons as they continue to leave and uh, lead and serve our church so well. And help us, Lord, as we continue on this Lord's Day, help us to lay aside our ordinary burdens and to take up the work of worship. Uh, and help us to do that with zeal and earnestness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.